0: Episode 202, Sean Hayes, author of the book, The Gray Choice.
1: Your mistake, it was my mistake. It was my mistake not to listen. It was my mistake not to understand.
0: I'm Mark Graben. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes, because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Sean Hayes, his book, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markgravencom mistake202. As always, thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Graven. Our guest today is Sean Hayes. He was the co-founder and former CEO of Allegiant Bancorp, which was headquartered in St. Louis. Sean started multiple successful businesses, was involved in things including the casino business. He bought, owned, and sold hundreds of residential and commercial properties. He's an entrepreneur, an author, a speaker, and a felon. You don't always expect to see that at the end of someone's list of um, labels or, or titles, but I appreciate that Sean is willing to talk with us um, today. He's the author of the book. Um, I'll hold up a copy for those on uh, on YouTube. The Great Choice: Lessons on My Journey from Big Time Banking to the Big House and Back. So Sean is joining us as part of his and back journey, and um, we're going to have a lot to talk about today. So, um, you know, Sean, thank you. For joining us and being with us. How are you?
1: I'm wonderful, Mark. Thank you for having me. I really look forward to this.
0: So I don't know if you know the title of the book and a little bit about your story there. Um it probably doesn't ruin your story. And I, I don't know which story you consider to be your favorite mistake. So I'll, I'll I'll just ask you. And I think we have two stories actually here. Um, what what's the first favorite mistake story that that you'd like to share, Sean?
1: Well, um, in uh, in 19, well, in, when we started in 89, I bought my partner in 92. And many of your listeners who are in business for themselves can relate to this, but if they have anything to know about banking, it's hard for banks to realize, but in nine years, we grew 50-fold. That's just unheard of. And uh, so along the way, one of the key things I learned, and I think this goes across all businesses, is that IT... Is for the little guy because it's you know you don't know, have big investments in systems and there's a lot of off the shelf things you can do that solve problems and so we brought in an IT guy in '93 after I'd failed at buying the bank he was with and uh, things were just unbelievable the next years we did things that the big banks couldn't do and uh, and then in 1995 he had uh, personal issues and said I'm moving to Florida and uh, he said my lieutenant can hold this together for about a year but you need to find someone. So the, the long and the short of it was, he was right. About a year later, the good news is we found a woman who I just think walks on water. The bad news is it took a whole year. And uh, so she got there in in, uh, in August. And I said to Kim, we're going to do whatever you want to do, because I saw what Jim was able to do for us over about two and a half years. And, and I trust you. So she came back in about six weeks and said, we need to do this. And for us, it was a million seven investment, which was a lot of money. And this was in November. And she said. And it'll be done the next November. I said, okay. I went to the board about two weeks later. We approved it. Well, in my mind, it's soft. Being an entrepreneur, you know, there it goes. Well, here's here's where my mistake kicks in. So she said, there's one thing, Sean. You can't buy another bank between now and no, next November. Well, Mark, mm-hmm. you know, that went in this air and out the other year. Yeah. In March, I got a chance to buy one. And uh, she said, Sean, you can't do that. And I said, and, no, what I'm going to.
0: Sorry to interrupt, but why why was she saying that? It would it would it would cause problems with the IT implementation.
1: Well, and this is what I didn't realize till we get to September. This is when I learned my lesson. It truly really was a mistake. That oh my gosh, uh, when I tell you the mathematical error in it, you'll 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 get the the magnitude. What she was saying was: first, we're buying all this hardware and software. Second, you know we have to train people for months. Then it takes weeks to install it and train them in using it, and then we turn it all on. So it was like, you know, my mind is you went to the store, you bought a program, you came home, you popped it in your computer, and, you know, a few hours later, you were playing ball. And, uh, she didn't, it didn't work that way. So in March, when I bought this bank, I said, Kim, no problem. Here's what we'll do. I won't merge it in till next March because it was small, it was only 30 million. It was about 20th our size at that time. And so that calmed her down and, and we, we made it through that. Well, we get to May, and in St. Louis, what's now US Bank made a big acquisitions of a savings and loan. And yet, in the Federal Trade Commission, made them divest. And we were borrowing, we were a $600 million bank and we were borrowing $100 million overnight, which is not a good resolution for a business. It'd be like a, a company saying, I need I need a sixth of my balance sheet and I want it on demand, meaning the bank can agree not to renew it the next day. And uh, all of a sudden I could buy $100 million in deposits. And, uh, and the price was right. It was two markets we weren't in. And Kim said, Sean, it's going to be a problem. Now, Steve. It had only been there about eight months in, nine months. So she didn't really have the ability to communicate the level of magnitude of problem. As an entrepreneur, a problem's no problem. So uh, we signed a contract, and uh, the announcement came Memorial Day weekend. We had to close Labor Day weekend. So Labor Day weekend, we I go to all these, ban- these banks on that Friday afternoon, that weekend. I, we have a great zoo in St. Louis for people who have never been here. It's one of the best in the world. And so I take my kids to the zoo and my debit card doesn't work and it doesn't really resonate, you know, okay, no big deal. Well, by the time I got by t- Tuesday, a bank in those days would close at two o'clock and then start a new day. What that meant was, is you started processing in most banks. you I mean, we were, we were considered a large bank and not a huge bank, like we became, but we would start processing at two and we'd be done around seven. Well, these banks we bought had so many transactions, tra- transaction accounts. They took us from two o'clock till noon the next day to process. No, oh, whoops. Yeah. 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 And so what happened Memorial Day, so this is going on. And by, by the middle of that week, we figured out that if you went to a bank and cash a check, our bank, or if you went to one of our ATMs, we didn't capture it. There was no what's called on us. So therein lies a mistake. Of, and I had all kinds of people who call me up the month later and said, "Sean, I got two hundred fifty dollars. You never charged my account, mm-hmm. but a million five hundred and forty-seven thousand dollars walked out the door that weekend that we couldn't find." Oh my gosh! Yeah. Now, two pieces of that, and then I'll get to, 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 to real the mistake that I found in it was one. That year we made about six million after tax. So it was about 20% of our action, 15, 16% of our actual for tax earnings. Our earnings, we were public, were up over 20% that year. No one noticed. And if you read the annual report, it was still buried in the footnotes. But I'll never forget a $1,549,000. The lesson in it, and the mistake was, that week, I wanted to fire someone. I went crazy. By the way, I didn't mention, Kim managed to have a child during this period. We had to set up in a hospital room uh, a, a computer system, because that was in the days when you had laptops that did what they did now. And uh, that whole week, I'm screaming, we have to fire someone. We have to hold someone accountable. And um, by the end of the week, I went back to my management team and I said, I figured out who it is. It's me. Uh, and when you say your, your mistake, it was my mistake. It was my mistake not to listen. It was my mistake not to understand. It was my mistake to buy this as important an acquisition it was And all this rested on me. But it's so easy, especially in our culture today. To look for someone to blame, and as I, I learned from that, that at the end of the day, you know, you're the, you're the person at the top. It's your it's your child. That's what I call my company. You're the one responsible, and that was an unbelievable lesson in making a very expensive mistake. Because three years before, we didn't make a million five forty seven pre tax. You know, so it was the magnitude of the loss, and it was just how quick it disappeared. And then really what it did was it sucked the life out of our culture for about a year. For a year, we were a different company. Now, what we did in that year was we made a lot of tough decisions. We consolidated. We did some things that we would never have done. So I would say the mistake, you always have to remember, and I think Harry Truman had the thing on his desk, the buck stops here. It stops with the CEO. And that's the one lesson. The other lesson is, is when you make a mistake like that, what can you do with it? And in our case, we sold some things that didn't fit. We spun some businesses off. We did things and we didn't really grow for one year, which was ironic for us as much as we grew in that nine year span, but we made more money and we were a better company. So good came from it, but, but the mistake was horrific. Wow. Um, That's, I mean,
0: that's a great story. And I appreciate you sharing the reflections and and the lessons learned from that. Did did somebody have to talk you out of firing somebody in that
1: anger in that week? Well, the other I had I had seven great great direct reports, and the one that ran HR ran HR. She was just unbelievable. And the whole time, I had someone I wanted to fire because to me it rested on the the man that oversaw the processing. Because how could it take twenty hours with a new system when it's you know should have taken two or three and not five or six even because we weren't using anywhere near the capacity. And, uh, and, and she and Kim were close. Of course, Kim was in the hospital this whole this whole week period, having a newborn with her. And, I, and what Karen was able to communicate to me was, Sean, this man was just executing your orders, doing your job in a chain of command. And yes, you want there to be consequences. and I And I love that about you in our culture. If you do something right, we recognize. If you do something wrong, we don't necessarily fire you, but we hold you accountable. But you got to look in the mirror. And, and, and she really had the ability uh, that she'd been there longer than Kim had to look me in the, in the eye and say that. And that's another point I'll make. I, I would say, well, I believe every business is its people. I said for years, my HR people could interview you and they would say, you're going to love these seven things about Mark. And you're not going to like these two, but he's really going to fit in our culture. He's going to be a high performer. But you, Sean, have to adjust your style to those two, meaning I'm not going to change you. But I, I'm not gonna say I'm gonna change. But I had to adapt, and so she had my ear in that way, and she saved Mike's job because left to my own devices, I would have fired him by Friday. I, mean, I was so darn angry.
0: At least you listened then to the HR person, and 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 you know, I appreciate you, you know, mentioning you know you're not blaming Kim for not convincing you of the you know, the the level of magnitude of the risk or the problem. You weren't blaming her, and. Um, I mean how, how did that lesson that moment um of, of of realizing like you said you found you found the problem in the mirror you took responsibility for it how, how did that affect the way you handled other situations going forward as a CEO
1: well it it, it humbled me uh you know you don't you, one you like to believe you're perfect and yet we know we're not uh, but it was humbling to have to go back especially to the seven people that I spent so much time with, because I just was on a tangent of we had someone had to serve as a con- sir, you know, serve a consequence for that. And I did. not And it made me more cognizant of my decision-making. And yet we're going to talk about my next mistake in a little bit. And you're going to see by then I had forgotten my lesson. And as many of us, especially again, back to our culture today, we have short memories and whenever we have short memories, we pay a price. And, um, I, I pay a much greater price in my next mistake.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and before we get to that, just one other comment I was going to make you talk about the tendency to blame. And I, I don't think that's even a modern society thing. It's almost more human nature. Um, You know, there, or, you know, you could look at, you know, from a evolutionary standpoint, there's, there's an old story. I'll tell it quickly of um, Coco, um, a gorilla that the handlers, for lack of a better word, had taught American sign language. And there's a famous story of, you know, Coco had a pet cat, like a real live living cat. Coco was, you know, taught to do these things and love the cat. And one day the handlers came back and saw a sink had been torn out of the wall. Well, it was clear Coco had done this. And they asked Coco and Coco supposedly in sign language replied, cat did it. Which, of course, Coco didn't get away with. With with that lie, but there, you know, there, there there is. I mean, I think something very human nature. It's a. I can see where it's a survival technique. Even if it's a matter of corporate survival, if you can blame someone else, um, I could see why we would have a tendency to try that. You know.
1: Yeah. No. It, it is a society. It is. It has been around ten thousand years, but I guess it just seems more prevalent today because every we live in a society that's become more victim oriented.
0: Mm. Well, that that's that's a different dynamic. Yeah. Of. Yeah. A more modern, um, modern day dynamic. But so I didn't want to sidetrack you, though, Sean, from uh, the second story. I think I know what it is. I could be wrong. But let me just tee you up to to talk about this other favorite mistake.
1: Well, I'll I'll start with um, and you and I know you've heard this. There's a saying that seldom in life are your greatest dreams realized or your worst fears. And I'm going to say. That I certainly have had both. I never thought I would start a company, take it public, and have unbelievable success and sell it at the pinnacle of um, of the industry's height in and, in and, and sales. At the same time, I never thought I would go to prison. So, in my mind, the only thing that worse could happen would be losing a child. I can't think of anything better could have happened in a in a career sense. Yet, I've done both. Yeah, yeah. and I think the segue I would use into this is the title of the book is The Great Choice. And I won't tell the story, but I'll tell the example because uh, there's a story similar to my personal experience. But if you leave Los Angeles on a plane headed for Washington, D.C., and you're off by one degree, giving time, speed, and distance, you end up in New York City. Mm, yeah, And I started at an early age in my career of making decisions that were not illegal or even not, 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 not even not criminally illegal, but sometimes in the, in the interpretation of the rules. And I told my lawyers this, and this is what got me in trouble. And I did it to myself. Absolutely. Was don't ever tell me I can't do something. Tell me how I can do what I want to do. Mm. And the example is I'm in St. Louis and it'd be logical for me to take vanavender Avenue to Vandervender Avenue and get on highway 64 and take 55 to Chicago. That's a simple way. Or I could Go to the airport and take a take a flight in. But my lawyers might say, no, you have to take I-70 to Kansas City, 35 to Des Moines, hitchhike to Minneapolis, and ride the train to Chicago. And then I would be left with a decision: do I want that much time and that much money in my effort to get to Chicago? I could do it, but and so that was the that was the culture that I that I instilled in myself and in my company. So we pushed. And we would get legal advice on how to interpret, how to do things. And once you start doing that, what happens, Mark, is this: you have it in your mind. One, you become successful, so you think you can do anything. Mm-hmm. And two, because you're seeking an answer that's going to let you do what you want to do, you now think you can do about anything. Mm-hmm. And but that didn't just, you know, someone asked me this question, not 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 on a show like yours, but they asked me, and they, I said, no, you don't just wake up. And, and Now, there are people that are wired that will do something criminal, but it took me many, many years of operating like that. And then what happened to me was when the recession hit and the collapse in 08, I was losing tens of millions of dollars a month, personally. Mm-hmm. What I didn't realize, and it's pretty obvious when you look back, was all my investments were in bank, banking, financials, or in real estate. And real estate collapsed, and what went down was real estate, financials. So I'm literally bleeding to death at the rate of $10 million a month. And so I went out to recreate what I'd done before and I had a way of doing it. That part was sound, I will say. Then we'll get to where I got, off course. But what I'd lost is, and these are back to your listeners, is when you're entrepreneurial and you're doing it, you have your, your ear to the ground. I call it guerrilla warfare. You're very basic. You're very tactical. You have great market intelligence. White well, i spent four years with a Fortune 200 as one of the top 35 people out of 36,000. And you just didn't have, I'd lost four years of market, And not only did I lose four years of market intelligence, I lost it when the world changed, when subprime lending and real. So I now walk into a world, not an excuse, but the reality of that I'm out of touch with. And what had worked so well for me for 15, 20 years before, let's say, didn't work any longer. And then, because, and this is back again to your listeners, especially if you're in business for yourself, surround yourself with bright people. I talked about the seven people who worked for me, but I had a board of directors, in particular, that there were four other people that we met a couple of times a month for 15 years, and they helped me at a level of accountability, and they made me successful because they were the kind of people. They none of them had any banking experience, and they would say, "Why do you do what you do the way you do it?" And when they ask that question, the answer better not be because we've always done it that way. That meant we had to retool. That's how bright these people were, Mark. So after 15 years, one, they were all 15 or 30 years older than I was. So they were either dying or retiring. And I lost, so I lost the group around me. I lost my own market intelligence. And then because I was losing so much money, I didn't use good professionals. Now, I'm not making any excuses. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I made the decisions I made. But the point is, and the mistake here is when you lose those three things, and I think those are crucial to anyone's success in business. And quite honestly, the same elements are key in personal relationships in life, is then my back's to the wall and left to my own devices. And this is how I justified it. One, I'd been successful in my decisions. Two, I'd skirted out there with good legal advice, and obviously not this time because they wouldn't let me do something criminal. And thirdly, because I wasn't taking money. This was my justification. I'm not taking money. I'm manipulating documents to buy myself time because I know given time in my prior experience, I'll make this right. Well, I committed
0: a crime. And 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 what what was the crime? I guess you know, I don't know enough about this world when you, you describe manipulating the situation. Well, that sounds
1: bad, maybe not illegal, but what can you can you well? It, here's what when you own a bank. And I own 54% of this bank. When you own more than 25%, you cannot do business with yourself on any terms. Less than 25% down to say five, but you should be to one tenth of 1% or one share. You need to disclose it. So not only did I not disclose it, I couldn't do it to begin with. Mm. And, so, and this
0: was a matter of, of loans, um, quote unquote, uh, self-dealing is, I think. Yeah, that
1: self-dealing saying. would be would be a much better term, although I had to explain to the government, even though they knew I committed a crime, when I finally um, pleaded guilty, they brought a room full of accountants and forensic people and said, would you please tell us what you did? How did you do this? And what I'd done was I'd watched a man in the late 80s, and we did this as a bank to a much smaller degree, take banks and buy Assets that were non-performing in those days of the Resolution Trust and other banks, and the government doesn't like that. They want you to only make loans that are good when you make them. You were making loans that were bad when you made them. But I went to the trouble of, and it was a gentleman that I've known for many years, and uh, and he and I and the irony in this is Mark. I knew this even before I did. I had described him. His brother was my securities lawyer, at the largest firm in St. Louis in the, in the state. In his world, I described Tom as. His world is 50% black and 50% white. There is no gray. And his brother, I would say, had 1% black and 1% white and 98% of gray from light to dark. So I knew what I was getting into, but he had gotten into, he had tens of hundreds of millions of dollars of loans that were non-performing. And I saw an opportunity to buy him. Mm -hmm. And, but I made him get other borrowers that could pay the debt. One was a doctor, was a real estate guy, was a car dealer. So you weren't really relying on them because that made my argument because I'd watched a man do this and make hundreds of millions of dollars 20 years before. The problem was he and I had a loan at one of the banks that I was buying it from. And in that loan, they wanted when they got rid of him, they wanted to get rid of everything to do with him. So to get to facilitate the transaction and let me buy his debt or my bank buy his debt for 50 cents on the dollar, we had to buy a loan that I owned half of. So the loan was already out there. But I didn't disclose in that package that I was in that loan. Therein is a crime. Mm-hmm. And I knew it. And and and
0: so why why go forward with that then in the moment?
1: Well, because the transaction was so lucrative for us that we were gonna we were making over a, a million plus like that. And that really made things better because remember now I'm per, I own 54% of this and I'm personally struggling at this point. And the thing was I had watched this man do this for years, what, what he was going to do. And there in an, another mistake is I learned that people don't always want things as bad as you want them. And what he did was, and it's my mistake, not his, is he I didn't realize the depth of his problems at that time. And this was the, the 16 million in debt we bought was about a tenth that was about a tenth of his problem. And what he did was as soon as we bought him, he didn't do anything. Where the 20 years I'd done business with him before, he would he worked through it because he was incentivized to the seven-digit number. Forget the savings on the debt, but he had that much to earn in getting these properties sold and leased and all these things. And that's how the other men made their money. And he just saw it as one-tenth of his problems were solved. So not only did I make, commit a crime and make a mistake there, I made a mistake. And a less, another lesson I learned was, is don't assume the other person wants something as bad as you do, or you know has a desire to see something to completion. And all this lie on me because I knew the day I did it, I'd committed a crime. The thing was, and this is again how I justified it, I wouldn't get any money. And if he'd just done what I'd watched him do 20 years I'd known him before that, and the 10 years before he'd done that in business... It would have just self-liquidated, it would have just disappeared. And no one would have ever known because if and it would have and it would have passed. But I didn't do the right thing. I committed a crime right off the bat.
0: And did did that crime lead to bank failure, or were there other
1: factors leading to no, the crime did not lead to the bank failure but the bank did fail and it had problems when I bought it back to ground intelligence, but I contributed its failure. That would have been a piece and, and a whole lot of other things, the lack of market intelligence that I, I, bl- I blame myself for that bank failure. Absolutely. But the crime in itself wasn't, but because the bank failed, now there was a real forensic audit. And, and it's like I described years ago, it's not like when somebody robs a seven 11 or a quick trip, you know where they go in, and then they call the police, and they and they go get them, or they try to get find them immediately. Um, that happened in, in August thirty first of two thousand nine, and um, I was questioned in thirteen, and I actually um, because I had a, a good bankruptcy lawyer friend uh, that I'd done business with for years had contacts with attorneys. office. he goes, well, they passed on you at the end of September of um, of two thousand thirteen, but right at the end of fifteen. They were on this other man for a whole lot of other reasons, and then when they did forensic, I was a much juicier target as as I should have been. I was in a position I broke trust, and I was a position of trust, and and I broke the rules, and I broke the law, and uh, and I paid a terrific price that uh, I wouldn't want anyone to have to do.
0: And 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 this took years. Then it sounds like from being uh, getting on the getting the attention of of law enforcement to the point of pleading guilty. Did you go yeah. through waves where you thought, well, okay, this isn't going to lead to criminal prosecution?
1: Yeah. It, it won when it first came out in 12 and early 13. And then by the end of 13, they said, no, we can't find anything. And then it came back up at the end of 15. So from the time I committed the crime, till I got indicted was almost seven years and it was in uh, seven and a half, uh, almost eight years before I served a day. So you know, and and the consequence of that is in itself is another cost. I mean, and and in this, um, you know, I deserve everything I got, but it's what I did to my family, in particular, my children, excuse me, my marriage. And then I I only own 54%. So I hurt a lot of shareholders, other shareholders, and and most of whom, uh, almost all of whom, I think, yeah, almost all of them were employees. So I betrayed their trust too. So I, the damage I did, was horrific, and that's that's a lesson I learned in there. Is uh, I never, until that happened, I won't say I never, but I seldom thought of the law of unintended consequences, and uh, the unintended consequences of my crime were far. I, I threw a boulder in a pond, you know, it wasn't a it wasn't a pebble.
0: Can, can you talk, Sean, about you know the dynamics? You you were sentenced to sixty eight months in federal prison. The dynamics of deciding to plead guilty.
1: Well. One, they first indicted me on three counts. And then um, about 10 months later, they expanded it to 10. But as my attorney said, Sean, you've really been charged with the same thing 10 different ways because the way the system works, and, and I hope none of your listeners have to uh, have to figure this out for themselves, is they want to charge you to where if one thing doesn't work, but a slice of paper next to it does, they've got you. And quite honestly, my attorney, as I described, my crime was so complicated if I could have had my trial bifurcated from my co-defendant, I would have gone to trial because he says, I don't think a jury can convict you of something that they can't describe as prosecutors in, you know, the average man or woman isn't going to understand. But what happened was, and the reason that, that drove me to, in December of 2017, I lost a motion to bifurcate my trial. And the co-defendant had a business that I had nothing to do with. I wasn't involved in. But he had done um, uh, carry back mortgages for people, for 212 families, and he didn't pay the first. He took their money. And so I would have been sitting at a table for weeks, and they would have brought in. and they said, we're going to bring in 212 families and talk about how they lost their homes. And at that point, the jury doesn't care whether you owned or did anything. You're sitting at the same table. And my lawyer said, you're going to get 20 years. He goes, it, mm-hmm. "That that's going to be the the consequence. And um, once, once we lost that, I, I knew it was over. Yeah.
0: So looking looking
1: back, I mean, Sean, you talk about the idea
0: of getting one percent off course, things that were in the gray area, not illegal. Do you remember what one of those early, like what an example of one of those early
1: moments or decisions would have been? Yeah, absolutely. In the in the early '90s, um, the the Fed came out with a regulation that constrained real estate lending that was a derivative of the savings and loan collapse of the mid late '80s and early '90s. And so back I went to my attorneys because we had a niche that we lent money on. We owned a market for foreclosures, short sales and things like that, tax sales. And the niche in that was, is that the sales were at noon in St. Louis City and County. And you had to have the money there by two o'clock. And most people that played in that market or most people want to play it, didn't have the money to do that. If You want to buy a $100,000 house, you had to have $100,000. You had to have it there in less than two hours. So we'd set up a department that just did that. And we, at that time, we probably had 20 or 30 million out before we were sold. We had a hundred million and it was, we charged huge fees and high interest rates because we could. And so I went to the attorneys and I said, this is a niche. And so they spent a lot of time and and good money and said, here's how we believe you can legally comply. Now they had to say, believe, because it was new law, you know, it wasn't interpretation, and, and sure enough, the government came in for the next 10 years after that, and we passed with flying colors, but we created a system within our law that was totally in the gray. Now, the irony in it was, is that part of it was we track things. And if we lent you $100,000 to buy a house, we did a six-month loan. The average duration was about 92 or 93 days, but in virtually every case, if they didn't sell it they went to another bank and the other bank lent them 120 or 150 or 160 on what we'd lent them 100 on. And so we were able to statistically prove that we were in compliance. We just couldn't comply given the timelines, but that's at one step. And notice I had good counsel. I had good people. I did all the things I should have done because there's a lot of money in business in the margins or in the gray, but if you don't do it right, it's very easy to go from that step to the next step, to the next step. And then in particular, um, you know, somebody uh, actually sent me an email um, that I got early, early this morning that had read the book that had known me many years ago. And uh, and he said, Sean, he says, I now see how you got to where you got. Mm-hmm. And uh, and not that I'm justifying it, but when everything's going against you and you're back against the wall, your judgment gets clouded. You know, we start justifying. No, We are talking earlier about blaming people. Whenever everything's against you and you're, you're there. It's a lot easier to say, well, I if I do this and, and I let my moral compass go. It was yeah. it's all on me.
0: Yeah. Um, we're joined again today by um Sean Hayes. Uh the book is The Great Choice, Lessons of My Journey from Big Time Banking to the Big House and and Back. Um, let, let, let's talk you know, before we wrap up about some of the the and back story. Um, you're 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 out of prison now, you're doing other things. And and part of what you're sharing with people is around this phrase that you use moral. Compass and the need to define your moral compass. I guess that's the, to prevent help any of us not get one percent off track. Can 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 you share a little bit more about how we might go about defining that compass?
1: Yeah, and I want to I want to say two things. Or one, I was reading the interviews, and uh, there was a lawyer that I knew tangentially going down almost forty years, and he used that quote when he was talking to the FBI. He said Sean lost his moral compass, and he was right, and it was he hit the nail on the head. Secondly, something that I, I like to remind people, there was a study done by a Stanford professor about a little over 50 years ago, and in the sum and substance of it was, given the right set of facts and circumstances, any person can commit any crime. And you, none of us like to think we could kill somebody or do something, but basically he proved that point that given, and so what, what I go back to the things that I, that I said when I was looking at my own things surround yourself with people who are gonna hold you accountable because left our own devices we can do some pretty horrible things and and I don't even mean criminal things that's one surround yourself with people there two is don't take your eye off the ball my thing was and I wouldn't change one thing more because if I changed one thing I wouldn't be in this position and I believe my mission is is to help people it's truly to help people not end up where I did but I didn't have a plan after I reached the mountain. And that was a mistake. And, you know, I was, I'm a big believer in planning. I'm a huge believer in goal setting, but once I reached them, I didn't have any. And, uh, and, and, and and then I was just lost. And and that's a big thing. I always said people, and I knew this inherently, but I just didn't apply it to myself is, uh, you know, when you sell a business, it's like a death, it's like a divorce. It's a whole thing And you have to have something else you're going to do. And you should be thinking that long before you sell it. And and I think those are the kind of things that if you surround yourself with good people. And the sad thing for me was, even though I mentioned that the men and women who helped me accountable for those 15 years, they were 15 to 30 years older. But I had other people around me I could have gone to. But then again, left to my own devices, I chose not to. Mm
0: -hmm. So... Restarting things. I mean, you know, so you're released from prison. What what is it like trying to start a business and and start working for others to help others? I mean, you're 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 you've written a book. You're, you're working to to make a living, but how, you know, I mean, what what have you experienced um, in in this this next phase
1: of of business and life? Well, one, I'm not complaining, but I now understand why the system is broken from being in the system and now being out and still in the system. Uh, I, uh, because I want to write the book and I want to speak, I was looking for a job because you're required to have, the government wants you to have a 30 hour paycheck job. That's, mm-hmm. that's a requirement of virtually yeah. every fellow. And so I wanted to make beds in a hospital, uh, the largest hospital system in in, in the metropolitan area, employs like 20 some thousand people. And they were so excited, and then and I told them I was a felon, and then they came back and said, "Oh, we can't hire you." Then I went to the second largest hospital system and told them I was a felon because there's no reason to hide it, and and I was going to work in the morgue moving bodies because I thought, wow, this is great because again the hours worked where I could do calls like this, I could pitch for speaking, and they didn't, and it was in a manner that I could take time off so I could go speak if I needed to travel, and uh, I'm I'm unqualified to move bodies in a morgue because I'm a felon. So when you look at those kind of jobs and you think, how do these men and women who get out that don't have the opportunities that I have make it? And that that's one lesson for society in this. So I ended up, I'm a school bus driver, and I absolutely love it because um, I work from four, well, from five till 830 and from 130 to 430 or five. And then the middle of the day, I do things like this. And because of the way it's structured in the state of Missouri, you're all part time, even though I one week I had 106 hours. Normally, I, I do 40, but it lets me, I can, as long as you give have two days notice, which in speaking, you have more, way more time than that, they'll let me have time off any time I it. Yeah. So I'm fortuitous oh, and it's allowed yeah. me to rebuild my life. And I'm so grateful for that. But it's also shown me how hard it is for society to adjust. It's almost impossible in my opinion. Yeah. Well, you,
0: you talk about that requirement to get a job and then you know there's a lot of people these days who are advocates for you know uh, encouraging companies to consider hiring felons especially if the job is not related to what they have been you know convicted to do and and i i don't i don't mean this to come out the wrong way i'm surprised that a uh, school bus driver was a job that they would they, maybe i'm sure that you know the type of conviction was part of it but um that yeah it's i guess different organizations have different criteria
1: no, it, it's an industry thing, and here's what it is: if you have a sexual crime, you couldn't do it, but you can for that. You know, which is but but Home Depot at prison was one of the big names they listen. Amazon Home Depot. I went to Home Depot; they wouldn't hire me because I was a felon. Yet in prison, on the board, when you when you look for jobs, they're number two after Amazon. So it's just it's it's convoluted. It's sad, and I'm I'm not trying to be a social justice advocate, but I think you have enough listeners out there. That are going to say, "Wait a minute! This is the way the world is," Uh because they wouldn't believe that.
0: Yeah, and you you, you mentioned investments and other things you're doing. You you still have that job today? No, I I don't.
1: And by the way, I had gotten out of the banking business long before I was indicted. Uh I made it. I gave a speech in 2010, and I said entrepreneurial banking is dead. Uh And the government, after the 08 crisis, they've regulated it to where banks, as I say in the book, is like going to Chick fil A you know, it, it, they want it to be a credit score. They want it to be simple. And that's why hedge funds and private equity are really the risk takers today. And they're and I described that 13 years ago. That's when it happened. I, I, I said, there'll be entities that will come out and replace community banking or whatever name you want to put on it, because the government doesn't want it anymore. They want a utility and they're getting it.
0: Yeah. Um, well, again, our guest has been uh, Sean Hayes. You can learn more about his book and, and the speaking that he does at his website, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, Seanhayes.com.
1: Yes, and I spell it right, by the way. I spell it S A U N. I joke about that because there are three ways of spelling it. And yeah. and, and I have the U, so I like to have fun with it. Yeah,
0: we'll we'll put a link in the show notes. And what, what types of audiences? You know, you talk about wanting to help people avoid the mistakes you've made. Do you do speaking for banks, financial institutions? Who who where, where are you doing your
1: speaking? Uh, lot, you know, Financial institutions, banks, accounting firms, uh, you know, uh, E&Y, my former auditors, they just paid a $200 million fine for cheating on the uh, CPA exam. I heard. Um, yeah. So you, you, you've you got that. I do a lot of universities because, uh, you know, you like to hit kids young and, 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 and young, young men and young women. And they're so much more entrepreneurial than my generation was. And when you're out in that world, you don't have the checks and balances that you have in a big company. So I talk a lot about how, in a small company to instill those things. But, uh, uh, I, I speak mainly on ethics. I I do get a lot of requests and I did one uh, last week. That was a mixture of entrepreneurship and ethics because I was unique in the fact that I did have a successful entrepreneurial career before I committed a crime. And so, um, so I have fun with that too. Yeah.
0: Well, Sean, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Stories. In this case, and you know, really appreciate you you know coming on the podcast and and and, and talking so openly about mistakes and lessons learned along the way. Um, I really do appreciate you for being here.
1: Well, thank you for having me, and
0: I enjoy your show, Mark, and have a wonderful day. To learn more about Sean, his book, The Great Choice, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraben.com slash mistake two oh two. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.